or drama. His work is not about subtlety, but it's also not about forceful closure either. Each, each exclamation hits another exclamation to form a resonant questioning and then a looping re-questioning. He's expanding from a tradition of black radical poetic theater in the vein of Adrian Kennedy and Susan Laurie Parks that disqualifies easy re- readings as a basis of its ethos. That is, the work's aesthetics are indistinct from their ethics, and the work is fueled by passion and generosity. For instance, when he engages techniques of appropriation, quotation, and sampling, he considers both the legal and philosophical implications of these different forms of stealing, borrowing, and paying homage, rather than lumping them into the neutral category of appropriation. His work has been featured in many publications and venues in print, in the flesh, and in digital code. His first full-length collection of poems, Fear, Some, was published in 2006 on Red Can, and his second manuscript, The Black Automaton, was chosen by Catherine Wagner for the National Poetry Series and was published by Fence Books uh, in December 2009. In 2010, he was named as a finalist for the Penn Center USA Literary Award in Poetry, and in 2008, he was honored with the Whiting Writers Award. He was recently a writer-in-residence at a gallery um, in Los Angeles called LACE, the Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions, working on the wall and in body. He lives in the Valley with his family, um, of which there are recent additions, two of them, twins. And uh, he teaches courses in African-American poetry, opera, and myth at CalArts. I do believe Doug Kearney is one of the most important poets living and working in the United States today, and I frankly think he's a genius. Please welcome Doug Kearney. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you, Anna, for that wonderful introduction. Okay, so um, we're going to be doing a couple of different things tonight. Um, I'll be reading some poems, but there are a couple of poems that I'm going to actually ask for your help in, because, uh, you know, I think I will just turn off the mic. It's kind of crickly, crackly. It sounds like I'm cooking bacon, and I'm just going to get hungry in the middle of the... Um, Yeah, there are actually a couple of poems I'm going to read today that I'm going to actually need your help with, Um, and it will ultimately end up being up to you whether I simply need your help in... Sequencing them, or if I actually need your help in performing them, presenting them. So we'll get to that in a moment. I'd like to begin with a poem from the first book. Uh, the first book is called uh, Fearsome, as Anna pointed out. This poem is called The Chitlin Circuit. Now, how many people here know what the Chitlin Circuit is? The Chitlin Circuit is the name of the route that African American performers used and still used to a certain extent to perform in front of African-American audiences. If you've heard of the filmmaker and playwright Tyler Perry, many of you have probably heard of him, um, a lot of his shows started off on the Chitlin circuit before Oprah was kind of like, bing, and suddenly he's a millionaire. <clears throat> All right, so the Chitlin circuit. Nigga shots, nigga shots, nickel apiece. Nigga shots, nigga shots, five cent each. Nigga shots, nigga shots, nickel apiece. Nigga shots, nigga shots, five cents each. Indiana, Bama, Missouri. 
Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Kansas City, Dakota, Texas, Adornia, Nebraska, Kentucky Land, New York, the Highlanders, Wisconsin, Indiana, Georgia, the Michiganias, boot shape train, shimmy tracks, bruise train blacks, shimmy shake, brute ape blacks, shimmy brains, boot shape train, shimmy tracks, blues axe paint, shimmy rage, bruise stain stage, shimmy space, boot shape train, shimmy tracks, bruise train blacks, shimmy shake, brute ape blacks, shimmy brains, boot shape train, shimmy tracks, blues axe paint, shimmy rage, bruise stain stage, shimmy space, boot shape train, shimmy tracks, bruise train blacks, shimmy shake, brute ape blacks, shimmy brains, boot shape train, shimmy tracks, blues axe paint, shimmy rage, bruise stain stage, shimmy space, boot shape train, shimmy tracks, Bruce train black, shimmy shake, brute ape black, shimmy brains, boot shake train, shimmy track, blue jack paint, shimmy rage, Bruce they stay, shimmy space, boot jack train, shimmy track, Bruce they black, shimmy shake, brute ape black, shimmy brains, he got it down in the beat, he got it down on the knee, he got it down in the beat, he got it down on the knee. This next one is a. Uh, <laughs> this next one's called Live Evil. Um, now, some of you might be familiar with that particular pairing of words beyond its palindromatic splendor. Um, it's actually the name of an album that Miles Davis produced. Um, now, this poem came about after I read this article by the writer Pearl Clay in which she uh, extended a particular uh, sort of challenge to people who were listeners of Miles Davis' music. And the reason she extended this challenge is because while many of us are probably aware of who Miles Davis is, a uh, jazz trumpeter, famous jazz trumpeter, um, something that we don't oftentimes talk about is the fact that he was also um, on record as an abuser of women, um, particularly uh, for this poem, his wife, Cicely Tyson, was also an actor. Um, now, Pearl Clay uh, wrote something that is the root of this poem, and I've taken a passage from that, from her essay, Mad at Miles, as a way of uh, forming an epigraph for the poem. Then there's another epigraph from a Terrence Hayes poem, which I don't think this poem was written in response to the Pearl Clay article, but you know, when you quote something, you get a chance to recontextualize it. And the final quote that introduces this, uh, this uh, piece is a quote from a phone conversation I had with a friend of mine named Ahmad Jamal Johnson. And the quote from Pearl Clegg is, Miles was guilty of self-confessed violent crimes against women such that we ought to break his records, burn his tapes, and scratch up his CDs until he acknowledges and apologizes. The Terrence Hates quote is, The trumpet's mouth is apology. The Ahmad Jamal Johnson quote is, You just... Write a poem about your need to do that. Live evil. The pin's point comes down on the butterfly. The knuckle comes down on Miss Sicily. The mallet comes down on the CD case. Wait! The mallet comes down on the butterfly. The pin's point comes down on Miss Sicily. The knuckle comes down on the CD case. Ah! The knuckle comes down on the butterfly. 
The mallet comes down on Miss Sicily. The pin's point comes down on the CD case. Bit! The pin's point, the knuckle, the mallet, damn it! The butterfly, Miss Sicily, the CD case. The rose's velvet plumes rip at the aphid's spit, but that feeds something. The phoenix's dazzling petals in the ash draws, but that births something. Come on in. The martyr's ecstatic smile as the bowels give, but that saves something. What did we make? Listen to the butterfly. The pinpoint makes no sound. Sticking the felt shell, no brass wail into the air. Here, it's silent as a necktie. This isn't quite right. Miss Sicily, a CD case, and the pinstripe three-piece. Did he wear a pinstripe three-piece? Did she kiss his lapel with red lipstick? Did he stick her lips red? Did she kiss it? I threw out the liner notes. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes he wore a pinstripe three-piece and a dazzling tie. The air was what bowels give. I have a mallet. Did he kiss her, lips red? Did he stick her with a pin's point? Listen to the brass wail. Listen to the butterfly. The plastic breaks and the silent breaks. This is the song of a man thinking he could build a rose with a mallet, make an infant phoenix with a pin's point, be a martyr with knuckles. This is the song of a man who threw out the liner notes. He wore ash draws. Wait a minute, damn it, Miss Sicily! Why won't you wait? Listen to the song of a man giving what bowels give. He had a mallet and the oils in the hands cripple. The butterfly won't fly again, so butter wait, butter stay, butter still. My fists are felt shit. What have we made? Better wait, stay still. Listen to the song of a man in its three-piece shell, it comes down. It comes down. The pin's point, the knuckle, the mallet. Wait a bit! No birthing, no saving, no feeding. Damn it! Listen to the song of a man who breaks. What have we made? So let's move from there to a new place. Um, let's go. Ah, I know what we could do. Let's go and do the pink teacup. One last one. One last one from Fearsome. <clears throat> and then we'll move into some of the newer work. So the pink teacup, I don't, how many people here are familiar with uh, kind of Greenwich Village in New York? Anybody here? Okay, well, the Pink Teacup is the name of a soul food restaurant in Greenwich Village. And it's very close to a subway stop that's near a basketball court called The Cage. I don't know if anybody here ever plays like uh, Xbox games or something like that, like NBA, uh, Rags to Riches, that kind of thing. You can play on one of these courts called The Cage. And what it is is a basketball court that's set inside this chain link fence. And so people come and like stand there, tourists and commuters and whatever, or stand there and watch. The people play basketball in this kind of cage and call it the cage. Um, I think that's all you need to get into this. So, uh, Pink Teacup Soul Food Restaurant uh, <laughs> and uh, the cage. <laughs> 
basketball court. And this is for a friend of mine named Kiata. At the pink teacup, Kiata cuts sweet tea with talk. The room empty, but for us, the brother waiting and love songs. Later, he'll recall tanks from a stoop, carve a sonnet of the day no one was underground in New York, as if the sky needed holding up and everyone came out to help. He'll pay for our food and we'll stare from the stoop as attaches commute past the swollen garbage bags flowering in dusk. But now he's talking about love. His tongue a knife, he cools in free refills. The menu says we shouldn't get. He's talking about what he wants, how he wishes it wouldn't burn his grandfather down, or that brothers would remember how fickle the Bible is. And the brother at the pink teacup is refilling our glasses. He smiles like it's the easiest thing in the world, and the menu looks stupid and petty. Later, Kiata will talk about gas masks and fruit stands, how all he could do was cuss the man who looked like some glass-eyed insect buying apples. You're scaring the kids, you fucking asshole! And how scared he is of what happens when everyone looks to the sky for messages and keeps everything sweet somewhere cold. New York will offer us bouquets in black plastic. The menus will fold. Commuters will buy apples and forget their gas masks in the closet. Right now, Kiara isn't talking about love. The knife is in his hand, cutting salmon croquettes. He doesn't want to burn his people down. But later, he'll talk about Sikh women beaten in Harlem. The bumper stickers and flags flying past us as we watch brothers hoop in a cage. Before then, he'll talk about what brothers do once they find out. He is full of sweet tea and pink flesh. The brothers full of sweat argue over fouls. The cage fence full of spectators like flies on the black garbage bags. The fruit stands full of apples, some bruised as the Sikh women. And New York, full of bumper stickers, crawls back underground, scrambles for its love songs, Bibles, tanks, Gas masks. Kiata wishes people would remember how fickle the flag is. And right now he is talking about love. When the brother comes back with the picture, Kiata is through. Later he will love the brothers. He pays now. Right. <clears throat> so let's move into um, one of the Black Automaton poems. Um... Now, the book is called The Black Automaton, but there are specific poems in the book that all have the kind of heading, The Black Automaton. And they're uh, each sort of these uh, typographically booyaka um, poems. Um, and the reason why I started making poems like this, and I mean, we, I'm going to leave some time at the end for questions, so... We could talk more about the particulars of that if you if you have any interest in it at all. Was that <clears throat> as a person who's uh, who started off really performing my poetry, um, a lot of times people come up to me and say, "I really loved your your reading, but I never would have gotten it if you hadn't read it. Like I never would have known what you think, how you think it should be, it should go without hearing you read it." 
And I mean, that's kind of a, it's, it's, I understood it as a compliment, but it's sort of a duck because the performer side was like, yeah, performance over text wins again. <laughs> but the writer part was like, but I put all the tone into the language. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, sort of in a, in, a, in a fit of peak, I decided to make these poems at first. Uh, again, it's sort of like a temper tantrum. I decided to make these poems that would really sort of aggressively suggest uh, approaches to reading. But what I wanted to do, though, was, and I'm so glad that you, that you brought this up, was to actually kind of almost subvert the idea that I'm telling you precisely how to read it by creating a number of different points of entry. You know, like, well, you know, what precisely do you do with this? Um, how does this work here? Um, you know, does this arrow that comes up and around, do we, when we get to that word, do we then have to bounce and boomerang over here? And what about this little going back that's hidden in there? How do we deal with that? Um, so <clears throat> what, I, what I decided to do was when I started making these poems, I wanted to create poems that I did not know how to read. And what I mean by that is I have never read any one of the black, even when I was composing them, I've never read one of the black automaton poems aloud without being guided by an audience. And so what I generally will do and what we're going to do today um, and just for simplicity's sake, I, I decided to project these, and I made a few copies, but again, for simplicity's sake, um, I'm only going to hand out a couple because that way, uh, you know, it'll be less distracting. Uh, but what I'm going to ask, all right, and uh, one more, I have one more for someone else who would like this. I'll tell you what you're going to have to do in a minute. You're not going to have to do anything that's going to be painful. So. <laughs> I can ask you to roll it up real tight. Tell me. Um, but uh, what I need you to do is I need you to sequence um, any of the poems of your choice. But I do want I do want you to make sure you do well this one, not the one that I have up right now. Um, and what you'll do is you'll put a number next to the section that you think I should read first. Like this would be maybe this is number one, or maybe this no 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 is number one, and then uh, you can put a number two somewhere else. And it goes and it goes and it goes. Now, if you feel something should repeat, simply put more than one number next to it. So if you think it should, if you think no sweat should repeat four times at the beginning, put one, two, three, four next to no sweat. Um, now, the purpose of this isn't to necessarily come up with a crazy, weird reading, although you can. If that's what you want to do, that's up to you. But I'm actually rather interested in tracking the way you read it. So don't think of it so much in terms of how am I going to make this you know, really interesting. But where does your eye fall? You know, how does it go? Do you find yourself going back? If you miss something, like if you didn't notice the going back, don't worry about it. Then you missed it, and I won't read it. So that's the thing. So I'm going to have you guys kind of do that now, and I'm going to come back in a couple of minutes for that. So I apologize for you uh, having to sit out for part of the reading, um, but you get to keep the papers, and, uh, you know, I'll give them back after I, after I use them to read. <laughs> All right, so in the meantime, let's do um, another, another couple of poems, some newer stuff. All right, so um, as Anna Jo was pointing out, uh, we recently had kids, twins, after a long time of not having them and uh, really wanting them. Um, so I'm going to read some poems. Uh, I'm going to read some poems about trying to have them, um, and then I'm going to read a poem that came about after getting them. All right. 
So these are poems called, uh, from a series of poems in the back of this book called The Six Cities. Four. City. Oh, one thing. Um, how many people here have heard of the term selective reduction? Um, those of you who know it uh, are know it and have a rueful part of your mind. What selective reduction typically means is if you have problems with fertility and so have multiple fertilized eggs implanted, it's kind of a gamble. You know, like you can get three eggs uh, fertilized and implanted. They, none of them may come to term. Right? You're kind of gambling on the fact that at least one of them will come to term. Um, however, as a matter of calculated risk, many times people have to choose between whether they have more children than they actually want or feel they could support implanted, thinking that some will die before they get that far. Um, and if they all successfully begin to mature and take hold, then you have to decide whether you're going to have selective reduction, which is essentially choosing one or more to abort. Um, and so that's something that a lot of people who are facing fertility issues uh, deal with. So this poem is about that for City. And we opened each locked gate in the crowded city. We knew how, what to do. We broke down the city's walls. They fell out. All the children we had been waiting for. Each we looked at more beautiful than the last, the last more beautiful then. And knowing the one we chose would be the child to live, Weren't we proud? Our eyes, broken with such smiling, didn't they just weep pink, blue? Five, city. The city of Black Cohosh. The city of Argonine. The city of red clover blossoms. The city of zinc, zinc and copper. The city of Tribulus and Saw Palmetto. The city of Selenium, L-Carnitine. The city of Gotu, of Gotu Cola. What to do, what to do. Six, city. In the city of dented infants to be, the clocks have all stopped. The eyes, tears, geometric and foul. Dirty tractor trailers lumber up urgent, the skid marks, the shards and fluid with crooked cargo. Keep reversing into fire hydrants. Keep humping over the curb. Porch lights missing every doormat. Kitchen doorways warped in, out, out in. My woman stirring her empty iron pot. The bottom of all things, dry snake in a drained well like fucking fire below that great obelisk knocking its broken neck against the smoke. Three, city. City of pavement groves and cement plots. Tarmac gardens and cinder block vineyards. Concrete fields, plaster orchards, and asphalt patches. Antagonist. Good news, you've had children. Yay! Thank you, but don't buy my baby's clothes with monkeys on them. This poem um, was written 
because uh, at, there was a brouhaha a few years ago because Costco was selling these dolls. And like, so there'd be a little human baby doll and a little stuffed animal doll. And so there was, a, there was like a, I think it was a little uh, brunette doll, and she had a panda, and it was called, and she was a little panda. And there was a little, uh, there was a blonde doll, and she had a kitten or something. It was like a little kitten or something like that. And then there was a black doll, and it was called Little Monkey. And, you know, when people talk about diversity, they oftentimes talk about sensitivity. And honestly, I don't think sensitivity is really the point. I think it's just cultural literacy. <laughs> I mean, it's not about it's not a sensitivity question of will the blacks be offended if we call the doll room? They might not like it, right? Maybe I don't know. Are they sensitive about that? But just the lack of literacy that you know, the willful lack of literacy to go, oh, black doll monkey, little monkey, great idea. Um, so, um, my wife and I oftentimes go to uh, Target or to uh, little boutique stores or whatever and try to buy clothes for our children. And we're always like, oh, great, this is so cute. It's, oh, but there's a monkey on it. <laughs> so, we can't buy it. We decided we wouldn't buy it. And as much as we like sock monkeys, we can't buy that either. But that leaves us open for things like sockadiles and sock to pie and things like that. <laughs> So I'm going to read just a couple of poems from this. Then we're going to get to the Black Automaton poems. And then if there's time, and there should be, I'm going to close with a peppy poem about the Middle Passage. All right, so... So, um, again... This poem is called, Thank You, But Don't Buy My Babies Clothes with Monkeys on Them. Part two. Throughout history, black baby bottoms blue as a baboon's nose. Throughout history, black babies get black, blue black bottoms till the stump of their circumcised tails black over. Baby got back. Got baby. A circumcised black baby tail must not be discarded, but kept for later for show. Got back. Got sing a blues of black bottom. Sing a blues of blue black bottom. Got baby. Throughout history, history has a way with bluing black babies. Say history has a history of blacking black babies. A history of blue blacking black babies blue. Baby! Black babies, a black mama's gut. Bucket blues. You want to see Ma's black baby? Picayune black babies, history's way of knowing black babies is discarded to hide its history of blacking black babies. Blue as a baboon's nose, nose tails. Pitiful black at the bottom babies. History knows black babies must not be, but must be kept. Got. Jigaboo black babies is history blacking over a blue black hide. A circumcised black baby's tail was often foreshowed after removal in a jar or dried on the mantle below the buck bust. Throughout history, history has a way with bluing black babies through over blacking. A baboon knows history not over. Back! Precious little monkeys. Curlicued tails troop queries on my babies. Curious. Lil monkeys and the uniformed overseer. Who can tame them? Unruly lil monkeys. No ways tired with new IDs and bipedal reveries. Musing lil monkeys. Pointless. Stick them with sticks. Big leaps from their green tenements. Angry lil monkeys. Go chew on the saw of fruit falls when ripe. Wait! Hungry lil monkeys. Smiling lil monkeys. Climbing pajamas. My daughter's onesie. Leering lil monkeys. Pincer the cribs. Bent senators. Hissing in lil monkey beards. Lil monkeys. Hands on murder. Stop. Put your hands up. Lil monkeys. Shot. Ball for it. Little monkeys, humans over little monkeys, motherfucker. Little monkeys over baby.
multiple thumbs. Black babies born in tuxedos or in tatters, but stay born in tuxedo gloves for their prehensile feet. When said babies wear monkey suits over birthday suits, they're still naked, but for four-finger gloves on their bunches of genitalia. Every several hours, a black baby is born with a hunger for what the gloves cover, fling cash to gag its palms. One such baby may be ID'd as blacker than not black, tall as not taller. Its four-finger gloves, you'll discover, seem reddish. It went down that street! They found a black baby, then we did too. Had to get it down the ladder. When it was swaying, it didn't need four-finger tuxedo gloves. No cover at all. All right, so I'm going to do some black automaton pause now. So that's one. And your name is? Becky. Becky. And Anna Joy both did the same poem. So that's actually kind of awesome because we're going to see two versions of it. Well, you're going to hear two versions of it. So this is what the poem looks like. This is what they were looking at. And you know, my, my performance is so polished that I, I just have to like say, this is the first time I've seen these versions of the poem. All right, so <clears throat> that's Becky's. We're, gonna do, and we're just going to go alphabetical. So let me give us one second to like look at it. Okay, one, two, three, four. Okay. Whoa, where's that? Oh, there it is. Okay, okay. All right, okay, that's, that's pretty logical. Okay, excellent. I can work with that. I can work with that, I believe. I just have to double-check one thing. All righty. So here we go. And just a quick introduction to this poem. Um, in uh, Rwanda, when uh, the Hutu were told to uh, go out and uh, go kill Tutsis, that was called doing their work. Uh, so it's go out and do your work um, on the radio programs. Um, work it has, a, has a big history in hip-hop lexicon as well. Um, uh, Punks run when it put in work. Put in work is, is typically L.A. slang for uh, killing people. Uh, you know, like so very similar to that. Um, man, they got that work. Um, it's also drugs. Drug slang. If you got work, you got drugs. Um, so this poem uses Destiny's Child um, from uh, their hit No 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 No. Yeah 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 Yeah. It uses the uh, Sixty Nine Boys, their song Tootsie Roll. Um, it uses uh, De La Soul's uh, uh, Grind Date. Um, and that's actually been corrected. It should be, it's been rewired to work, but I'll do it the way I messed it up the first time. Um, this is from Ice Cube's, uh, I think that's from, uh, the nigga you love to hate. Oh no, the wrong nigga to fuck with. Um, this is from Ludacris's Saturday. This is from Cool Mo D's, I Go to Work. And this is AC Alone quoting Last Night a DJ Saved My Life by, uh, uh, Intimate. Intimate. All right. <clears throat> The Black Automaton in What It Is, number three. Work it out. No, 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 no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rwandan moaning radio raw and the hits keep coming raw and the club bangers keep it rah, rah. Let me see that Tootsie Roll. OOG's figure subtraction eradicates difference. They sun up to sundown. Someone must be picked. It's been built to work. Work. You don't know your brother you hate the most. Ludicrous. Not work. Ludicrous. 
Punks run when it put in work. Work. Niggas on the block, man, they got that work. Work. Not work. Ludicrous. But it's from a long line of workers. Thus remains inclined to work out problems, sir. It's not a problem that it, it can't fix. It can't fix. No sweat. Going back. Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> All right. I that was fun. All right. Okay, let me see. Okay, you have a couple of things to say. Repeat. Um, how many times? Just once? Okay, let me see that Tootsie Roll twice. <laughs> that, that's an invitation. And also... <laughs> Y'all were paying me thirty more dollars. I would let you see the material. All right. And then there's another repeat, whether by the OOGs. Is that the part? Yeah. When you come down to the arrow down at the bottom, uh -huh. go back up and repeat that one line, but then come back and roll through the rest of the poem. Gotcha. All right. I think I can do that. Okay. Rwandan moaning radio, no, 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 raw and the hits keep coming raw and the club bangers keep it rah, rah, yeah, 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 yeah. Let me see that Tootsie Roll, let me see that Tootsie Roll. OOG's figure subtraction eradicates. Going back. Going back. OOG's figure subtraction eradicates difference. They sun up to sundown. Someone must be picked. It's been built to work. You don't know. Punks run when it put in work. Your brother put in work. 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 Niggas on the block, man, they got that work. Not work. 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 You hate the most. It wasn't there at the time, but it's from a long line of workers. Thus remains inclined to work out problems, sir. It's not a problem that it can't fix. No sweat. Kind of right. But yes, I'll get it right later. After afterwards, we could try it again. All right. So um, I have time for one more poem, and then I'll leave it open for some questions. Um, so as promised, I'm going to do a peppy poem about the Middle Passage, um, because there aren't enough peppy poems about the Middle Passage, which when you think about it is kind of strange, because I mean, like, you know, if it weren't for the Middle Passage, which is, you know, the transatlantic slave trade, black people wouldn't have Nikes or bouncing cars, and that's, that's, a, pretty, that's a pretty good deal. And I mean, you know... We got over here, there was, you know, we didn't have to pay for travel, room and board, had a job when we got here. You know, these kinds of things are not the sort of things that in a recession people would complain about. <laughs> um, so this is kind of what this poem looks like. It's actually a, kind of a center spread, so you kind of go back and forth. Um, but anyway, um, we'll talk more about, if anybody cares, more about that kind of thing later on. But for now, I'm just going to give you a couple of uh, points of insight into the poem so that we can begin. And thank you very much again for indulging me. Um, so this poem is called Swim Chant for Nigger Merfolk. Um, and there are a couple of things you should know. Um, number one, there are a lot of sharks in this poem. And, if, and sharks 
and uh, Africans and African Americans and people of the African diaspora have been associated in arts for a long time, um, particularly because of the Middle Passage. Because what would happen is we had a bunch of people sort of stacked in a ship like Ikea bookshelves, and somebody got sick. Well, you kind of get rid of them so they wouldn't infect the rest of your cargo, your inventory, um, because there wasn't any real good use for dead Africans at that time, dead black people, because uh, gangster rap hadn't been invented yet. So, <laughs> so if you wanted to protect your investment, you would get rid of the sick person. And sometimes they would do it um, just as a kind of a way to terrorize the, the, the enslaved Africans and also the crew. If you think about it, the crew of a slave ship had to be, had to be signed on for a lot of things that most crews did not have to deal with. They were jailers, torturers, guards, um, as well as all their various duties on a ship. So a lot of times there would be mutiny. So what ship's captains would do, would sometimes they would take an enslaved African and hang them over the side of the ship. And the reason they would do this is because, how many people here have ever uh, fed pigeons in a park or seen it done on television? All right, okay. So what we can learn from that is that animals... Uh, given the opportunity, the choice to choose between foraging for food or just going and getting food will oftentimes just go to the spot where they can get it. That's why you train dogs with treats, because they're food motivated. Um, so like pigeons, sharks would follow these slave ships because of the possibility for humans tossed overboard, another offal that they, that they could track down. So people, would, the ship captains would sometimes dangle a slave over the side so that shark could tear the slave apart. Everyone would witness that, and it was a pretty effective way of keeping people in check. Now, you know, when you just think of the, the raw physical terror of that, um, you know, that's, that's horrible enough. But you also have to think of the religious systems in place at that point. And for many of the enslaved African people, that was not only physical damage, that was going to be spiritual damage that they would carry on with them into the actual, even their afterlife would be doomed. Right to this kind of pain and suffering. So you have to imagine this is what they're witnessing. And you also have to imagine that this is not a choice taken by, they're, they're taking by choice, and everything they're encountering is foreign to them, and they're now seeing these monsters come up from the water and tear um, brothers and sisters apart. Um, so, and parents apart. So there's some sharks in this poem. Um, there are also a few things that are cited, a um, few texts. One is Parliament. Uh, not the governing body, but the funk group. Um, one is uh, uh, Disney's Little Mermaid. One is T.S. Eliot's love song of Jack Kufa. And uh, the final bit is Robert Hayden's poem, The Middle Passage. Um, and there's also mention of a duppy, which is a spirit that comes after someone has been murdered um, unjustly. Swim chant for nigger merfolk, an aqua boogie set in lapis. Never learn to swim, but me show can dive. Over million ship do wow wow, over million ship wow wow. Let your fish bones slip on 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 Make a wish to be black fish, make a feed, be black flea. There's company, coming, coming. Hammerheads, hammers, head to ham, or head till hammer's fed. Oh, there's company, knocking. Great white jaw. Oh, great white jaw jaw. Juju. No, 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 no. Face company. Diamond, diamond. Duffy, Duffy, say, stay we in Azure. Amber, can't remember, can't remember. Oh, face company. Hainton, hainton. And all about was a darkening cloud and the gullet filled with bride and cotton. Cattle. Chattel. Charnel channel of a deep blue. 
See all about that darkening cloud and that gullet-spilled water and the gullet-spilled slum. A salt, a salt, charnel channel of a deep blue sea. Poseidon slides, his foaming shroud, short, no one will see. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Some wonderful things around you, what more is you looking for? So sang a pair of ragged claws, scuttling across the flow of silent seas. Oh, ye nigger merfolk, a love song for song lovers, it'll all be thin, fine, thin. Attention, nigger mermaids, mermaid and merminies, chain like hooked in St. Sardinies. Do not believe in the sea. The states won't wash out. We ain't responsible for your less. Much abilged, the management. Voyage through. They's company, hating, hating, can't remember, can't remember. Oh, they's company, hating, hating, the states won't. Like to open up the floor for questions. <laughs> yes, oh yes, I will repeat the questions. For the, oh, for the oh, see, awesome. Yes, for posterity. Um, so um, yes, uh, feel free to ask ask questions, and if there are no questions, um, I'll just talk <laughs> or read something else. But it's but it's fine. I like answer answering questions. Anything? Anything? Ah, yes, okay, so we'll start there, then there, then there. Yes, sir. How do you get the words huh. like that? <laughs> All right. Great question. Great question. All right, so the first draft of this poem I wrote, I actually did in, in, in Word. And I was able to do everything in Word except the sloping of, of Make-A-Wishy, Blackfish, that stuff. And I'll show you. Um, I think I have it in here. The program that I've used since is uh, called, uh, at one point I was using Cork Express, and now I'm using InDesign. Um, now, these are generally expensive uh, programs, but what I figured out is that because they're frame-based, what you do is you make these boxes and you can put text in there. If you use uh, PowerPoint and just print the slides, you have the same effect, pretty much. And that usually comes with everything. Oh, that's Chitlin Circuit. That's what I was reading first. Um, Anyway, let me get back to this here. So, oh, here it is. Yes. Okay. So this is what the first draft of Swim Chat of Nigger Folk looked like. And that's in Word. And uh, what I did, I did a few smart things and then one very stupid thing. Um, the smart thing was to make the water effect of the let your fish bone slip. All you do, there's like a thing that you can like uh, raise or lower the point, the, 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 the letter over what's called the baseline, which is this invisible line that all the text is lined on. And you can raise it by a certain amount of points. You can drop it by a certain amount of points. And you just go one up, two up, three up, two, two up, one up, zero, one down. And you could create this kind of undulating effect. This column, I sat there for hours um, trying to figure out how to make a section break in Word so I could make this column instead of just going make a wish, tab, 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 hammerheads, tab, great, one. I, I mean, I worked, and it was, and it got to the point where I, if I added one line, it made the entire poem jump the page. And so I was sitting there going, like, it all has to be on one page. So, so that became a kind of interesting constraint for me, limiting it to one page. Um, but yeah, of course, like I was 
giving a conversation about this, and I kind of sat there and said, I could have just tapped it. I could have just and I would have saved hours. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. So 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 InDesign is a graphic design program. It's from the same sort of creative suite as like Photoshop, which you probably you might have heard of, um, Illustrator. And what it does is you you uh, create text. You uh, you create a little document. I'll see if I can open if this will open fairly quickly. Um, uh, and when you want to put text down, you you draw a box. And the text goes into that box, and then you have complete control of that box, independent of the rest of the of the uh, document. Um, so there we go. Let's just do a shortcut. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Da, 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 da. So I, I'll talk. I'll do another question while I'm while I'm opening that up. What is another question? Yes, sir. Excellent question. Boom, 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 boom. Um, so I started off doing performance poetry actually in San Diego. I lived in San Diego from 1996 to, uh, uh, to 1999. And there was a local workshop called uh, Writer's Block. And it was held based on a model of a workshop in Los Angeles um, called the uh, World Stage, the Anansi Writer's Workshop. And what they would do is it would be three hours long. The first hour, they would have an, an open workshop. Then there would be like a 30-minute featured artist. And then there would be open mic. And so I started off in that capacity. And what was interesting about that down here versus Los Angeles is down here, we didn't expect people to bring photocopies of their poems. So what you ended up largely critiquing was kind of a performance of it because you didn't have the paper to look at. And so it became a kind of a performance-oriented spot. Um, my original concern was that I wanted to get past this whole debate that people were having at the time about page versus stage. You, you might have heard about that kind of thing, um, where people were saying, you know, per poetry that's been written for the page is only true poetry. It's rigorous and, and subtle and, 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 and staid and very calm, right? Uh, some people call that the poetry of quietude. And then people would say, no, no, performance poetry for the stage is the real poetry because it's not all elitist and it's open and people come up and, you know, it's all interactive and everything. Um, well, I was kind of like, well, why wouldn't you try to get the best of both, right? So at the time, I was really uh, hot on the idea of fusing them. And so I came to this uh, sort of thing. I wrote this poem called Atomic Buck Dance where I was doing all of these – Gosh, yes, I, I haven't been repeating the questions. Dang. <laughs> um, uh, where I would do these sort of fusions, where I would do these uh, these puns, all these homophonic puns. So it's sort of like you hear it, but if you don't look at it, you're missing another layer of text. But what I found that, what I figured was that's actually not saying they're one and the same. It's actually emphasizing their differences. And so I became much more interested then at figuring out what couldn't, you know, like what were the limits of each of each approach. The poems, uh, the Black Automaton poems, are connected to the work of folks like the Futurists, um, as well as a, a guy like uh, Massin, who was doing something called uh, experiment, uh, wait, emotional typography, or expressive typography. And so he was trying to, and I can show you some of that work, he was trying to, uh, he reset Inesco's The Bald Soprano um, using just photographs of actors and then 
different typefaces for each one, but sort of playing out the dynamics of the scene with the type. It's like right there you have an argument and people talking all at once or people speaking over each other. And so to me, that became this sort of way of creating a, a visual score for the performance through the type. So it was taking this idea of what I call the talking page or the performative page. And so instead of deciding, well, my poem's going to look like this and that's not going to have a relationship to how I think it should be performed or, you know, I'm going to divorce myself from the idea of the poems existing in the air, um, I began to really get into creating these kinds of relationships. And what's been fascinating to me about that has been the concerns are roughly, for me, the same as when I'm writing a poem that's not quite as typographically performative. I still have to decide whether or not I'm going to align two pieces of text, for example, um, because that creates a spatial relationship um, in the same way that one might think, well, do I want to metaphorize these two terms? Do I want to create some kind of linkage? So for me, it becomes another literary device, and when it's a, a device for composition. Um, and when I'm at my worst, it's a special effect. Usually those poems don't see the light of day. When I take a poem that's not very strong and I do something to it to make it visually interesting, that's when it's a special effect. Um, and I, and that's, that's just a lack of rigor for me. It's, it's a weak, that's a moment of weakness, and those poems generally get revised out in the same way that a cheap rhyme or, an, or a cliche and another form might get revised out. So that's how I sort of came to that. I've been working on that really seriously since about 2001 is when I really started first delving into it. There was a question over there. I think there was a young... Uh, back row. Did you have a question? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, for me, let me just finish. The question was, do I put a lot of thought into the typeface and how do I go about choosing it? Um, there are some, some parts of it are very uh, pragmatic. Um, I like to have a full library of different... Uh, typeface opportunities. So I like to have a, 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 a font group that has, say, um, an italic, because all because when you just press italic, it just slants them. A lot of a lot of typefaces, and that's not true italics. Um, so I like an italic. I like a bold. I like having a bold and an italic. I like having a bold. You know, like, and and then I also like the thing that's been my my uh, my greatest love has been the small capital. And the small capital. So this is uh, this is Times regular. They don't have a uh, a small capital in their an official small capital in their in their font library. So let's say I go to a typeface like. Let's go to ITC New Baskerville. And 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 this and and the Black Automaton. I actually designed the Black Automaton um, and did all the typesetting and the cover and everything for it. Um, and that was set in New Baskerville, and uh, the, t the titles were in Franklin Gothic. Gothic. So this is a small capital. Um, and I love those. They're very elegant, um, you know, versus that, a large capital, or just a standard sort of thing. Um, and, I mean, you know, you can really uh, nerd out on italics um, because the italics are designed in such a way that the space between them should create a kind of a graceful sort of motion. Like, like at, when, you're, when you're not blowing up this, this far, you almost see, you almost fill in this space with your eye. 
So it creates almost this sort of flowing sort of cursive. Um, and then there are typefaces that have really remarkable letters, but they only look that way in one in one face of the fonts. Like Galliard has this gorgeous um, uh, capital Y in italics. Um, I don't I don't know if I have Galliard in this computer, but I'll show it because now I'm thinking of it, and it's so sexy. All right. All right. Let's see. Do I have Galliard here? Let's just look. I hope I'm not being too uh, boring. Ah, yes. Okay, that's Galliard. I see Roman. Oh, no. Oh, it looks like I don't have Galliard. I don't have the, the, the bold italic. But it looks, oh, man, it looks like, it looks like a, a fountain. It's, it's, it's got the, the base of the Y. It goes up at a slight angle. And instead of curling the Y like that, they kind of go like this. So they kind of go like, it's really, it's really beautiful. And I have, and I will admit to being tempted to write poems using that, using a capital Y in an italic just so I can look at that sexy letter on the page. It's just a gorgeous thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. You, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. You know, for years... It's funny. The fact that I've become a type nerd is actually kind of, kind of ironic to me because I used to hate hand lettering. Um, and I used to not pay a lot of attention to letter forms. But recently I've been feeling very compelled to create, um, you know, to do hand lettering. Um, you know, when I'm writing cards or writing a letter, you know, I'll like make a kind of a weird calligraphy or whatever. Um, I would be very interested in doing... Um, a, creating a typeface, you know, a la Kamal Brathwaite or something like that. Um, you know, that, wow. Uh, that's, it's, it's, it's a real commitment. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I don't know how many people here have ever done anything like that or know anything about it, but I mean, you know, you, you can't just kind of go like, I think my poems use these letters, so those are the only letters I make. Like, <laughs> like, you know, you have to do an entire body and all these. So yeah, I have thought about it, and that might be something that I try to do in a, in a few years when I've gotten to that point where I feel like I need to, to do something else that's going to frustrate me immensely. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, and then I'll, and then I'll, sorry. Nothing needs to be called anything. Uh-oh. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if someone were to refer to you as a visual artist mm-hmm. and was uh, trying to assess you based on, on your work as a visual artist, how would you feel about that? Um, I mean, I think it would be, I'm actually really interested in the notion of taxonomy. And the reason why is because the moment you create a, a set of rules or set of frame, I love that because then, I mean, people feel like it restricts them. But I actually think that what you gain from it is it, the audience, the reader, has a set of expectations, and they will fill in so many blanks because you are writing a sonnet. So this must be about love, right? So being able to take those rules, they go both ways. Knowing the rule and being subject to the rule is a mutual sort of thing. So I think that the, I think that the, only, the only reason that I would have any level – I keep hitting that. I'm sorry. The only reason I have any level of uh, – any level of uh, concern about the question of being assessed as a visual artist, you know, purely um, at any level is because I do feel like I'm really engaged in the question of the difference between reading and looking, right? And I do think that there is a, a difference. And, and, I, and I talked about this at another lecture and had a chance to sort of go back and forth with a, in a very good way with, a, with, with one of the uh, students there. Um, about this notion of there being a distinction between reading and looking. Um, if you look at a, a piece like, where's that? There we go. 
if you look at a piece like this futurist poem, ah, at oh that not so much that one. There's another better one. In fact, I'm gonna do this. If you look at this wild style, at some point you're 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 engaged in the question of well, do I look at it as a picture um, where I'm not necessarily applying a linguistic meaning to this curve, this curve, or that, um, or do I constantly try to do I not see it until I've read it, so to speak? Um, this piece is, is funny because it actually the the name this, the artist signature is up here, so it's sleep. This says sleep, but without that signature there, at some point. Do, does your mind kind of cross over into the realm of okay, these are just sort of shapes, and I'm not trying to, to read it, so to speak, and I and that's a question that I imagine has been bandied about in the visual art world a lot. I haven't read enough about it to be able to enter that kind of space and sort of go like, well, this is what I'm doing, and that would be the level of my resistance, only because I don't necessarily know the lay of the land. But um, I I I adore graphic design, and um, I mean I'm a huge graphic arts. Uh, and graphic design kind of geek and junkie and you know and if I were not married I'd be a graphic arts groupie um, <laughs> a graphic design groupie so so I would be at one level honored and appreciative and then I'd feel the immense weight of of having that title and being like well how do I honor that title with the with the level of praxis that backs it up but yeah you have you had a question yes I did if you consider the framework uh, the score mm. Ah yes, yes, yes. Um, in the poem, uh, in the in the uh, Miles Davis poem, for example, um, let me see if I can pull that up real quick while I'm chatting, just so you can see it. It's less uh, abstract that way. Um, uh, there are there are these spaces that I'm using that I'm really trying to honor them in the in that in the presentation of that poem, um, and a lot of that is rooted in the first poem I. Did like this. Uh, good. There we go. Excellent. It's right there, too. Close that. Um, so this is a page from the Miles Davis poem. That's the second page. So there's a couple of things happening in here that I think relate to your question. So if you recall from the beginning, um, the pin's point comes down on the butterfly. So we have that pause, and it closes it slowly closes um, till the till the lines sort of flow in that way. Um, another thing that's that that's happening here is um, if you look, I'm going to create just a little line. It's not going to stay, but if you look at that kind of vertical line, you see that this is the song of a man to the song of a man. This is the song of a man to the song of a man to the song of a man. All those are on that same line, creating a sort of an under an undergirding structure. That variations of that line, like in a jazz solo, which will have um, particular uh, sort of phrases, musical phrases that are repeated, it might feel random. So that that love supreme is going to keep coming back and creates a sort of a structure and returning point. And so I wanted to, from a compositional level, suggest that. Here, so with that variation, that's happening there. Um, you know, the damn it does that on on this page too. Um, you know, there's a couple of times where listen does it, um, but 
Yeah, so so when I'm thinking about that, and in fact, um, I one of the one of the libretti, libretti I've written uh, is for an opera called Suction, um, that's about an abject housewife's uh, psychoerotic transformation, cyber cyber erotic transformation through the subversive use of a vacuum cleaner. Um, and the libretto, this is what I gave to my composer Anne LeBaron um, to work from. Here, here's some, I'll show one of the fun pages. Will you close? I'm sick of you. You don't need to be out there. Dang it. Fine, stay. Show everything that I have of the. All right, so this becomes the, this is the, the libretto. That's what I gave her. Um, and uh, that's another part of it. And, and that's a cyborgasm. That's when she merges with the vacuum cleaner. We actually, we actually built a, a I sh- I'm going to say we because it makes me sound like I have that kind of technological skill. But, but, but as a collective, we built a vacuum cleaner with a, uh, with a Wii controller in it so that when you moved it, you could control the pitch and speed of a signal that was being played from a laptop on stage. She could actually kind of play the signal by playing the, la- the uh, vacuum cleaner during the opera. Um, so yeah, so that's so that's a kind of an approach to to, to that idea of scoring. And what I what I was really excited about is um, if we ever, with the director that we worked with, Nataki Garrett at Cal Arts, um, if we ever staged it beyond a kind of a showcase level, she was actually going to use the libretto for staging as well, like like stage design, like figuring out where people are going to be. So so it really was a sort of a fun challenge, and that to me is the extreme version of that, where I'm literally giving this to a composer and saying, well, this is what this is what I hear. And giving it to and giving it to the composer at that level, um, but I mean I don't know how many people here do have ever done performance poetry, but almost every poetry performance poet I've ever met, no matter how their poems sound, they're almost always completely left aligned, and sometimes there's not even oh stanza breaks because they know in their head how it's supposed to go, and they don't ever expect anyone else to read it, right? So they don't score it because you don't score it if. If it's in your head, right? You score it so that somebody else can perform it in a similar sort of way. Um, and the the first poem I ever did in uh, this sort of mode was a poem about breakdancing um, that looked like this, um, written for a friend of mine named Pokey, who was a b-boy in San Diego. Um, and uh, my friend Yona Harvey uh, looked at this and said, well, you got this poem about breakdancing, and yet it's standing against the wall like a wallflower. What's going on? And so when I took it back, I, I, this is all just words, so I just started reworking it like that. And it began to reveal more of the sort of rhythms that had been built into the lines. Um, this, this part here is the backspin. Um, and, if you, and if you see the poem side by side, in a spread, it kind of goes like this, to this point, and then back up. Now, if I were to have done this poem today, I would be concerned with, well, if they read across the spread, then it seems like going down to this point and then back up, are people going to read that as two columns or are they going to read it straight through? And so that would be a question that I'd have to ask myself now, um, you know, if I, if, I read, if I were to set it for that. Like, how would I do it to get something closer to the reading I had in mind. In this, in this case, this poem, because it ends with the point, your turn, which is the end of the battle, 
your turn kind of thing. It would be important to me that after all of this, that's what happens. So sometimes that sequence is really important to me. Other times the idea of, of uh, opportunity for sort of improvisation on the part of the reader becomes more important to me. And it's and again, to me, it's like any other sort of you know moment in sort of poetic composition. Sometimes you want to use a moment of ambiguity. Every time you're choosing a word that, because it means something very specific and not a syn- synonymous word that might mean two things, you are saying, I want a certain level of specificity and precision in how my audience reads it. And vice versa, the moment you kind of go, huh, let me use this one because I'm going to use the word cleave because cleave is one of those great words. I can't remember what the technical term is. Do you remember what it is? Where it's a word that has two definitions that are actually opposite. So cleave can mean to cling to, but it can also mean to separate, right? Isn't that great? I mean, isn't that like, you could put that in a, in a poem and the entire poem hinges on which direction the reader goes with it. And, and to me, that's the same kind of thinking that comes when I'm doing this kind of typographic stuff. What happens when I put a word here? And whether and it's and it's kind of like rhythm. Rhythm is happening in the English language when you write. You may not be using it strategically, but it's happening. Design, layout, it's happening. If you have a poem that goes all up against this side, that's a design decision, and it's happening. Most many of us who've uh, been in poetry workshops can see a sonnet before we count the lines, right? So choosing a sonnet or a poem that has about that amount of lines is a design decision at some level, and it's communicating a possibility. So, so you know, so so when you when you look at this stuff, you know, I'm 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 interested in it and I love it, but it's not a special effect. It's in line with the same kind of decisions that we're making whenever we write, whether you're deciding to use a hard return or an in jam or whatever, right? Like like all of those decisions are contributing, um, and this to me is just some way that I can get certain music that I hear in my head out on the page. And that's something that was interesting to me. Yes. And then well, just your whole performance was very live, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I appreciate how you deal with you know the meshing of form and content here. Mm-hmm. And but it, it, it really seems like you you kind of choose the content that allows this, you know, you dealing with the funky form and stuff. So in your kind of decision making process, going at the page, are you saying, well, I have this kind of idea that's going to allow me to mess with form, or are you just going inspired by things like Miles and his wife, or right. you know, is that kind of content or kind of seemable? The, the question is, uh, am I, am, are my decisions about content, um, it's a chicken or the egg, if I may, so is, is, is my decision about content influenced by the fact that I want to do certain things visually, um, or or does content influence? In general, yeah, in general, in general, yeah. Um, I mean, to me, it 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 really it really varies. I mean, I, and I don't want to make that sound like a non-committal committal, uh, committal answer. Um, when there are certain poems that, when I begin them, I know that I want to do something typographic. The poem Swim Chant for Nigger Merfolk began as an exercise where I took two minutes and wrote down as many titles for poems that I would never write as I could. And so Swim Chant for Nigger Merfolk was one of those titles. And so I came back to it like two months later. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Let me make a poem out of that. 
Um, when I began to think about it, what I thought about immediately was the artwork of Kara Walker. I don't know if anybody knows her artwork, but she makes these really transgressive silhouette tableaus of plantations that are like sort of perversions of antebellum literature, like Uncle Tom's Cabin or Uncle Remus tales. And I wanted to do something that would have the same sort of transgressive relationship to the slave trade as she does to the actual plantation life. And so a part of my idea at that point was, well, to capture that, I wanted to look like a tableau. So it looks like a kind of a scene of a ship passing and bodies being dropped off and the sharks and, and then the, the seafloor. So in that case, there was a fusion of affect um, and reference to something outside of the poem. Um, there have been other moments where a poem like let me see. A poem like Canal Rat's Chanty, for example, um, which, ah, here we go. Here we go. So these are the flood song poems. I didn't read any of these today, but these are all about Hurricane Katrina. And what I wanted to do with this poem was I wanted to eliminate a certain level of exposition, right? When you're writing a poem, there's always the, the challenge of if there is historical information or a dynamic that you're trying to go after, do you have to write, well, this is what I'm doing somewhere in there? And I didn't want to do that. So I began to think about um, a, a, I began to think about how these different animals, because there's a different flood song for eight different animals, um, how their relationship to Katrina would have been. And I began to think of the canal rats, which would have eaten pretty much everything that was a product of Katrina, dead bodies, uh, damaged materials, spoiled food, they would eat everything. And the rats would be extraordinarily, viciously, organized might not be the word, but methodical about how they would eat everything, right? A chanty is a work song for a ship. And work songs have something in common. Work songs are almost all designed around the idea of creating a regular rhythm. And that regular rhythm makes it possible to work as efficiently as possible. When you go to a factory, you'll hear, you know something's wrong when you hear, when something goes off rhythm, it screws up. On a ship, just like on a railroad track, that precision is absolutely important because if somebody's coming down on a hammer when you're leaning in, you could die. If somebody steps on the gangplank while you're walking onto it, you can be ricocheted off and fall into the ocean. So what this poem does is if a, if a chanty has to be rhythmic and organized to work, this here is the clusterfuck that was Katrina. And, you'll, and, and, and I'll zoom in so you can see this better. But all of these lines are in quotations. So hey that, oh that, fix that, damn you, watch that, how's that, shit that, damn you. And then this repeated blowing down, yes, all the way down. So that's what the rats are hearing, right? That's what they're hearing. They're hearing the human response to the tragedy of Katrina. This is the rat. These are the rats here. Taste that. Taste that. Taste that. All you. Blowing down. Yes. All the way down. Perfectly organized. The text here becomes a rat's nest. So in order for me not to write a poem in which I say, at some variation of, a chanty. There was a chanty, but the chanty went wrong. You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> Which somebody might be able to pull off in a really fascinating way. I just didn't want to deal with that. I just didn't want to. So I made it happen like that. So this was a poem in which I didn't really know how I was going to deal with the problem. But later on, I thought to myself, oh, wow, if I do that, it deals with the problem in a way that's also visually kind of immediate. Um, and, then there was the, and then there was the careful uh, positioning of these lines so that 
um, you know, the only things that are completely obscured are, are times where it's repeated. Where's that? Where's that? Where's that? Damn you. Fuck that. Fuck that. Fuck that. You know, so there are these moments where if it's completely obscured, it's probably because it's being repeated elsewhere so you can follow it. So I'm still concerned with legibility, um, you know, but so that becomes another decision. So, yeah. So those are the two kinds of ways. And then, you know, sometimes I just I, I a poem doesn't need it. Uh, you know, this is another way of dealing with the concept of simultaneity, which is very difficult to create in text without saying, and they said it at the same time, you know. So I wanted to deal with simultaneity when I, when I, when I realized how I could be dealing with this. Well, everything's happening at once and it's disorganized. I was like, oh, I can layer it. So I just make layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of text. Um, and then it becomes this, 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 this huge mess. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess if I could follow up. Also, in the earlier poem, you were you had a lot of it seems a lot of anger, really. Mm-hmm. Just wondering how that those certain emotions that seem kind of beyond you know just caps and italics. Oh, yeah. How you kind of you have to use words sometimes and do a great job of. Just seems you know there's sometimes more than an obstacle of just. Arrange the text well, absolutely. I mean, but that's but that's the, the, the question is you know sometimes there are emotions or ideas that you want to communicate that are beyond just kind of textual formatting, right? But I mean that's that's I mean everybody in here who is a writer, and that means whether you write poetry, fiction, or are writing an email to somebody or a letter to somebody. That's the thing we that's the thing we we face. Our our modes great, our, our medium's great uh, sin, <laughs> well, great weakness, so to speak. We'll say challenge, we use corporate language. <laughs> our, our, our genre's great challenge is that there are some things that are, that are, that are tonal, um, that everything hinges upon the tone, and some of that you can communicate with the syntax and the context, but sometimes you get to the edge where you can't, um, you know, and it's what happens when you have a script and you have an actor that performs the script well, or performs the script poorly, or performs the script in a way that transforms the script. Um, like sometimes, uh, sometimes they read it precisely as it is, and yeah, you got it. But if they read it in a way that brings some other thing to it that's not textual, then there you go. Um, I mean, I hope that in the again that in the body of the of, of the text itself that. You know the arrangement of words, the 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 poems that the, that this poem might be in proximity to when it's in the book will give somebody a sense of, huh, this whoa this this mention of Disney in this poem is funny. That's that's funny. That's funny. Why is it funny? Right? I think that we have been taught, a lot of us have been taught to doubt our instincts when we're reading poetry, and so we come across something that might seem funny in a sad poem or angry in a love poem, and we don't trust it. And so we go like, well, it's a love poem, so why would it be angry? And we kind of shut down our ability to read it. Um, but most of us, by the time you know, we're at the college level, we've been reading you know, for you know, 12, 16 years. You know, like, like, so we, and we've been communicating for more than that. So what we all have is we just have to trust that if we do our jobs as writers, which is to pick the best words, for what we want to do, for what we want to accomplish, right? And that we are at some level clear about 
something we are interested in communicating. And it might not be information in the sense of, well, the bathroom's over there. It might be information in the sense of chaos. You know, like there are ways to communicate that. And so our job is to give the reader as much as we think is necessary to allow them to understand something of that communication. But that's the basic job of communication at any level. If you do ask me where the bathroom is, and I say, <laughs> oh, man, um, where Nicole and I had that date that time, man, wow, woo, <laughs> lemon pepper, you know, like, <laughs> like Nicole might understand, oh, yeah, the lemon pepper chicken is around the corner, okay, good, but if you don't have that frame of reference, then that is not effective communication for you. So, 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 uh, so, so that's the job all the time. So when I reach that threshold, it's the same threshold we all reach. Um, I think that through the kind of concerted use of type, I can possibly tease other things out that I can't necessarily get at when I'm just using type you know, next to each other. But again, that's simply a compositional decision. Um, you know, sometimes the word that you need is not a polite word, and you have to decide whether you're going to go there. Sometimes for me, the, what I need in that moment is... A, a typeface that's three times larger than something else, and I can't have, and it needs to overlap, needs to be centered and overlapping this other text. And that's when I when I make those decisions, and then I hope they work. You know, the same way I hope that choosing a Sestina to you know write about King Kong works, <laughs> which I've done. Yes. <laughs> okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. The question is uh, that that is there a particular performance of mine that has been particularly memorable? Um, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give I'll give I'll give two examples, and if a third one pops up, I'll I'll, I'll name that too. Um, the first example, I had the opportunity to perform as an opener for Amiri Baraka and Roscoe Mitchell. Uh, yeah, Roscoe Mitchell. For those of y'all don't know, it's the, uh, from the uh, Chicago Art Ensemble of Chicago. This crazy, I you can you we'll start by calling them jazz, but they go beyond all that um, avant-garde, uh, you know, jazz performance group. Um, and uh, he was going to play, and Amiri Baraka was going to perform over that performance. So it was going to be live, and I was given the opportunity to open <laughs> for that. I was like, okay. And I mean, I, I, I felt like this is like my, this is like my Rocky moment. You know, I, I was waiting <laughs> months in advance, months in advance. I was just prepping, prepping, prepping and just getting myself to the emotional level I was going to be. It was in this theater in San Francisco. Um, and I had this tremendous tension headache before it began, like a blind, nauseating headache. And I took something, but I was like, I don't think this is going to kick in by the time I get up there. Um, and I had a 45 minute set and I went up. And I just, I, I mean, I just, I'll say I killed that shit. I, I just, every time I've ever performed, and this is, and this is, this is perhaps, you know, com overly competitive, um, but it's, I'll, I'll tell you the truth because the truth doesn't always make you look good. Every time I've ever performed, I felt like my job was this. If you put me last, my job is to make you forget everyone who came before me. <laughs> If you put me first, my job is to make everyone who comes after me pissed at the sequencing. <laughs> and if you put me in the middle, 
it's a combination of both. <laughs> um, and that, and I didn't give the elder statesman Amir Baraka a, a, a break on that. I was like, I'm like, I'm gonna go up there, and this is gonna be my shit, and he's gonna. <laughs> You know, and now that you've seen Douglas Kearney, you know, afterwards, while you're, if you don't go out to talk to him about his performance, we have Amiri Baraka and Russell. But, but it was, it was just a really, it was just a really special thing. I mean, once you're done, once I'm done, I'm kind of like, oh God, thank you. You know, like, and, uh, and, you know, I, I mean, I love it when somebody reads something that makes me go, crap, let me look at my set again. Um, that's great. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the will doesn't extend beyond that moment, but, that was a fantastic one. And then the other one that I will, that I will cite um, is there's a poem that I had um, about hip-hop called uh, Boom Bap Jam. Um, and in some ways, it was a precursor for this, which is a, a chapbook, actually. And it's a chapbook that's a series of broadsheets, broadsides. Um, um, so, yeah, so we've got these. But uh, I usually don't perform my poetry to uh, musicians. Uh, with with music musical accompaniment, um, only because when you write as though you're not going to have musical accompaniment, you build your own rhythms, and so there is always a level of distortion when somebody else plays something, and you're kind of like, oh, okay, so now I have to fit this kind of thing. And I mean, sometimes it can be really great. Um, I was doing this poem, and the poem kind of builds to this really. Uh, big climax with that chant, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire, we don't need no water, let the motherfucker burn. But it, it, it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes. And the group I was playing with, whatever, they just, they had something to drink or something. They just tapped in to what I was doing. And, and it felt like, it felt like I was on the front of a wave of sound. And everything I said, every time I got louder, they made it exponentially more intense. And the only thing you can do in that situation is try to stay ahead of it. Because if you fall off, everything is screwed up. If you go like, ah, the roof, the roof. So I'm you, 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 you know, you're now you're going like, okay, this is as far as I can go. No, they're still pushing. So I got to go further. I got to go further. And the ending took me out of I'm Douglas Kearney reading poems. And when it was done, I had twisted my ankle earlier that day. When it was done, I was so kind of, I'll just use the corny language, but I'm being extraordinarily sincere. I was so kind of overwhelmed by that, that I left off the stage, like I threw, my, <laughs> threw the pole like, out the yard, not theatrically at all, not like, this is going to look good, yeah, take a picture of it. Ah, I was like, ah, get this away from me, like, get that away from me. I jumped off the stage, ran to the corner, like they're still playing, ah, whatever, Ran the corner and started punching the corner, right? Like, just because I had to get it out. So in some ways, that was the, one of the most memorable performances because it was an indication of what happens if you let the energy of a poem, and this was angry energy. As you pointed earlier, a lot of poems are driven by a kind of anger. Not all of them. Some of them are driven by panic. Um, in a very real way. Like the poem is about panic. Like uh, the little monkeys, the repeating little, little monkeys, that's panic. That's terror, right? But, but uh, t that those poems can take you. And if they take you and you're in public, you have to be careful <laughs> of what you do. And if they can take you and you sat there for hours studying this thing and knowing where all the stuff's going to happen, they can affect other people too. And so that's why that one's memorable. 
You're very welcome. chapbooks for Sam. I'm going to set this one aside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, that you can buy, and I bet you he'd even be willing to 